Well, as usual, uh, the quotes have been edited, cut and pasted for the sake of clarity. I won't cite all my sources, but I want to give a special uh, credit to Drs. David Berlinski, Wolfgang Smith, and John Harnett. In his work, The Summa Contra Gentiles, that great doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, states, quote, It is absolutely false to maintain with reference to the truths of our faith that what we believe regarding creation is of no consequence so long as one has an exact conception concerning God. Because an error regarding the nature of creation always gives rise to a false idea about God. That's worth repeating. It is absolutely false to maintain, with reference to the truths of our faith, that what we believe regarding creation is of no consequence so long as one has an exact conception concerning God. Because an error regarding the nature of creation always gives rise to a false idea of God. Now, in that regard... This little book is a real contribution to clearing up a massive number of the unfortunately common errors regarding creation. It's entitled The Metaphysics of Evolution. It was written by Father Chad Ripperger. The Metaphysics of Evolution, Chad Ripperger. It's a perfect gift for the priest or philosopher in your life. It's academically rigorous. It's pretty dense, but it's really, really good, and it has a nifty little dictionary in the back of terms, okay? This work is a reflection on an application of first principles to the claims of evolution. Now, we've talked about first principles before. Here's just an example of first principle if anybody's forgot. The principle of identity, A is A, like this book is this book, or this thumb is this thumb. And we pointed out that no one can deny fundamental self-evident principles. No one can deny first principles. If he does, he's a madman, and he can't be reasoned with. In this work, again, it's the Metaphysics of Evolution by Father Chad Ripperger. Father Ripperger lays out a series of irrefutable and absolutely conclusive arguments from first principles which demonstrate the absolute impossibility of evolution. I'll quote from the conclusion of this brilliant little work. Father Ripperger. When we consider first philosophy, that is, that branch of metaphysics which studies first principles, and we apply first principles to evolutionary theory, we begin to realize that every form of evolutionary theory violates some first principles. Our chief concern has been to show that given some of the more evident first principles, it becomes clear that evolutionary theory is not able to be sustained rationally. Since it's irrational or contrary to reason to violate first principles in one's reasoning process, we can say that evolutionary theory is irrational or contrary to reason. While it is true that evolutionary theory is irrational, we should not think that everybody who holds evolutionary theory is intentionally being irrational or that they would have sufficient knowledge of first principles to realize that the theory is irrational. However, in light of this study, in light of the principles, or in light of the findings of serious empirical research that contradicts the claims of the evolutionary hypothesis, and in light of theological considerations, it is our hope that the scientific and academic communities will stop taking a prejudiced view of the matter and begin considering the issue with greater intellectual clarity. Close quote, Father Chad Ripperger. Let's pray that this book finds a wide audience in seminarians and priests. Now, one of the major obstacles for people taking our religion seriously, especially those of us who are trained in the empirical sciences, 
is the current standard model naturalistic explanation of the origin of the universe known as the Big Bang. Now, just in case someone here isn't familiar with the standard naturalistic explanation, we'll take a moment to summarize in only the most general terms what the cosmologists claim. Now, cosmologist is a physicist who specializes in the study of the formation and evolution of the universe. Okay. Almost 100 years ago, astronomers were analyzing the light from galaxies, and they noticed a phenomenon called a redshift. We don't have time to get into technical details, but we can say... The one possible, and it's not unreasonable, one possible way of interpreting those redshifts is that there are signs that the galaxies are moving apart. And indeed, the redshifts were interpreted as proof that the universe is expanding. And the assumption was that the more redshifted the light, the farther away the galaxy. The cosmologists, again, those are the guys who study the formation and evolution of the universe. The cosmologists then reasoned, if the universe is currently expanding... Then if we go backwards through time, sort of run the the movie backwards, so to speak, there once was a time, roughly 15 billion years ago, when the whole universe was squished together in a tiny volume. The whole universe, everything, was squished together into a point much smaller than a proton. And by everything, uh, the cosmologists mean all energy, all space, and all time squished up. Everything, everything in the universe all squished together in a point smaller than a proton, a point of infinite temperature and density. And then suddenly, for no apparent reason, the Big Bang happens, which is everything begins exploding outwards. And as the universe expands outwards and cools, the energy begins to condense into matter until the universe becomes a gigantic, transparent, expanding cloud of gas, made up mostly of hydrogen with helium and some traces of lithium and deuterium. Over time, inside this immense expanding gas cloud, by the force of gravity, vast areas of gas begin to coagulate until galaxies and stars are somehow formed, until finally, after 15 billion years, we have the current universe just as we see it today. So now that we've considered a thumbnail sketch of the Big Bang, let's ask ourselves a question. If that's what the scientists tell us what happened, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? There's plenty wrong with that. And we only have time to consider a few problems. First, we'll consider a few scientific problems you may not be aware of. And then we'll consider a few more general methodological problems. Scientific problems. First problem, the problem of the, red, of the redshift. Okay, remember that the notion the universe is expanding hangs upon the claim that because light coming from distant galaxies is redshifted, this then implies that the galaxies are moving away from each other the more redshifted the light, the greater the distance. Now, the original work on redshifting was done almost a century ago by analyzing data from 20 galaxies. More recently, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, prominent American mathematician named Dr. I.E. Siegel and his associates, spent 20 years analyzing data from a set of more than 10,000 galaxies. Siegel and his associates have demonstrated They've demonstrated the redshift is not related to some measure of distance, but is related to the apparent brightness of the galaxy. So much for an expanding universe. His conclusions, quote, By normal standards of scientific due process, the results of Big Bang cosmology are illusory. Big Bang cosmology owes its acceptance as a physical principle primarily to the uncritical and premature representation of the redshift distance relationship as an empirical fact. Observed discrepancies have been resolved 
by a pyramid of exculpatory assumptions which are inherently incapable of non-circular substantiation, close quotes. Now, in plain English, what he's saying is Big Bang cosmology is bunko. It's a bunch of malarkey. It's a scam wrapped in circular reasoning. That's what he's saying there. The importance of these results can't be overstated. What has been claimed to be evidence of expanding universe is seen to be nothing of the sort. The redshift of a galaxy is simply a function of its apparent brightness. So the whole theory collapses just like that. But we're not done beating it up yet. Next problem for the Big Bang Theory, the problem of the formation of stars and galaxies. Quote, the theoretical astrophysicist, Professor Stephen Hawking of Cambridge University, in his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, claimed that his Big Bang Theory was, quote, in agreement with all the observational evidence that we have today. Close quote. Now, the casual reader might reasonably conclude from this that Hawking's Big Bang Theory explained the origin of the universe, that is to say, explained everything. Surprising, this is not the case. A few sentences after Professor Hawking claimed that his Big Bang Theory had explained all the evidence, he admitted that among the few remaining unanswered questions was the question of the origin of the stars and galaxies. Now, in the universe where we live, if you take away the stars and galaxies, there is, in effect, no universe left to explain. Close quote. Okay. So the theory which supposedly explains the formation of the universe can explain the formation of the stars and galaxies which actually make up the universe. And the importance of this fact can't be overstated either. Quote, the universe is by definition the planets, stars, and galaxies that surround us. Insofar as Big Bang Theory does not explain the origin of these objects, then we can say that Big Bang Theory does not even address the question of the origin of the universe. It does not even get to first base. Big Bang Theory produces, at best, given the benefit of every doubt, an expanding mass of gas. Close quote. Big Bang cosmology is bunko. It's a bunch of malarkey. It is a scam wrapped in circular reasoning. Next problem. The problem of the missing matter and energy. Now, according to this theory, as we heard, under the force of gravity... Vast areas of gas begin to clump up together until galaxies and stars are somehow formed. The strength of galaxy, gravity depends on the amount of matter, the amount of stuff. The more matter and energy, the more gravity. So they've surveyed the skies and calculated the amount of matter that's scattered out across space, and that's the problem. According to this theory, there needs to be quite a bit more matter and energy than they found in order to have the gravitational forces necessary to form all the stars and galaxies and galactic clusters and superclusters. Keep in mind, of course, that the, star, the theory doesn't actually explain their formation. But anyway, according to this theory, there needs to be quite a bit more matter and energy than they found in order to have the gravitational forces to form all the stars and galaxies and galactic clusters and superclusters within the so-called 15 billion year age of the universe. So how much more matter and energy do they need for the theory to work? Well, according to NASA, as of January 2013, just a few months ago, when they surveyed the universe, they can't find 95.4% of the expected matter and energy. Think about that. As the chairman of the astronomy department at the University of Washington put it, quote, it's a fairly embarrassing situation to admit we can't find 90% of the universe. Close quote. Yeah, I'd say so, but he's actually working with old data. Now they can't find 96% of their imaginary universe. 
And then they've gussied up this loss uh, with, with fancy terms like cold, dark matter and dark energy. But keep in mind that not only has nobody ever seen either cold, dark matter, dark energy, they don't even know where to look for this stuff. The missing 96% of the universe reminds me of the, the, the man in the poem. As I was going up the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish, I wish he'd stay away. Big Bang cosmology is bunko. It's a bunch of malarkey. It's a scam wrapped in circular reasoning. Next problem for the theory, the problem of the cosmological constant. Now, we don't have the time to explain the significance of the cosmological constant, so we're just going to point out the magnitude of the problem. Professor Steven Weinberg, he's a Nobel Prize winner in physics, points out that the discrepancy between the observed value for this constant and the predicted value according to Big Bang Theory is greater than 118 orders of magnitude. Okay, for those that weren't trained in the empirical sciences, what does that mean to say the discrepancy between observed values for this constant and predicted values is 118, it's greater than 118 orders of magnitude? Well, picture the number one followed by 118 zeros. Number one and 118 zeros. To be off by 118 orders of magnitude, and it's more than that, means a predicted theoretical value of this constant is not 100 times greater, not 1,000 times greater, not a million times greater, not a billion times greater, not a trillion times greater, but one followed by 118 zeros times greater than the experimentally observed value. Well, that's just beautiful. Quote, the scale of this problem is so great that no other problem in cosmology comes anywhere near it. It is so embarrassing and so challenging that you can read whole books on cosmology without encountering a single mention of it. Nowhere in Professor Stephen Hawking's popular books does he spell out the nature of this problem. It is as if he does not want to acknowledge that it exists. Close quote. This stuff is bunko, it's malarkey, it's a scam wrapped in circular reasoning. Finally, the problem of a hidden ideological assertion. In the large-scale structure of space-time, a book published in 1973, Professor Stephen Hawking states that, quote, we are not able to make cosmological models without some admixture of ideology. Close quote. We are not able to make cosmological models without some admixture of ideology. And then, as a concrete example of an ideological assumption, he cites the Copernican Principle. The Copernican Principle, obviously it's named after Nicholas Copernicus, is not an experimentally determined scientific principle. It is not a scientific principle at all. It is an ideological assertion that the Earth is not in a central, specially favored position in the universe. As one cosmologist put it, quote, it is evident that no well-informed and rational person can imagine that the earth occupies a unique position in the universe. It is evident that no well-informed and rational person can, can imagine that the earth occupies a unique position in the universe. To which I reply, it is evident that no well-informed and rational Catholic can possibly deny that the earth occupies a unique place in the universe. He came here. He came here. This stuff is anti-Christ, anti-Catholic bunko. The point here is these cosmologists start 
with the ideological assumption there's no intelligent design on a cosmic scale. And surprise, 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 surprise. Then their so-called scientific results show there's no designer. They start with the hypothesis of no designer, and they grind for a while, it kicks out no designer. That's circular reasoning. Big Bang cosmology is bunko, it's malarkey, it's circular reasoning, big scam. The science isn't solid, it's a joke. The reason the Big Bang is so strongly defended in the academy is it because it functions as a materialist myth to explain creation without God. It's just an agenda-driven fairy tale for adults. As a physicist, mathematician, philosopher, Wolfgang Smith, significant, when he made, after he did his master's in physics, the guy figured out the theoretical problems that, that had to do with reentry. Wolfgang Smith, it is above all imperative to get over the notion that science is simply a quest in search of the truth, open, unbiased, and fair. We need to realize that the enterprise has an ideology, an agenda, an establishment, and vested interest to protect. The worldview at which science arrives by purportedly rigorous means proves finally to reflect the ideological assumptions that guided the enterprise from the start. Close quote. Okay, we've looked at five, quick look at five scientific problems with the Big Bang, a so-called scientific theory. We've seen the very basis in the Big Bang for the idea of an expanding universe. The redshift is instead related to the brightness of the galaxy. In other words, the evidence claimed for expansion shows nothing of the sort. We've seen the theory can't even account for the formation of stars and galaxies. We've seen that according to the most current estimates, approximately 96% of the universe can't even be found and they don't even know where to look for it. And then we've seen that the discrepancy between observed values for the cosmological constant, what the Big Bang Theory predicts those values to be, is greater than 118 orders of magnitude, which is 1 by 118 zeros. It's that many times off. And we've seen it's a small wonder that cosmologists conclude there's no designer since they start by assuming there is no designer. Isn't science? It's a fairy tale. It's bunko. There are a lot more problems with the Big Bang Theory. The hard part of a sermon like this is picking which problems to beat on. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time to treat this theory with the contempt that it so richly deserves. It's a fairy tale. Methodological problems. Now let's stack back and ask ourselves two very basic questions. First, what is the actual goal of the Big Bang theorists? What are they trying to accomplish? And second, are there any hidden assumptions? Okay, so what's the actual goal? What are they trying to accomplish? It would seem that all they want to do is to describe the history of the universe, as the title of Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, makes clear. But let's dig a little deeper. In a BBC interview, Stephen Hawking uh, explained the purpose of his more recent book, The Grand Design, which he co-authored with Caltech physicist Leonard Mladeno. Now, I'm going to read this interview, but I want you to ask yourself, is this really history? Is this really science? Or is it philosophy and theology? Ask yourself those questions. The BBC, what is your book about? Hawking. Quote, why are we here? Where did we come from? Why is the universe the way it is? Why is there a universe at all? This book is meant as a sequel to A Brief History of Time. Its main purpose is to explore the existence and meaning of the grand design of the universe, which doesn't require a designer. A few quotes from the book itself. Ours is not the only universe. I think the definition of the universe from the Oxford Dictionary, because I looked it up, is all existing matter and space considered as a whole the cosmos. Ours is not the only universe. Well, where does he get this information? 
This is science. Back to Hawking. Ours is not the only universe. A great many universes were created out of nothing. Where are they? I guess with the 96% of this universe we can't find. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now, does that sound like history? Does that sound like science? Or does it sound like really, really crummy philosophy and theology? Thomistic philosopher Edward Fazer comments, quote, Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mladeno tell us that because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Ignore, for a moment, the incoherence of the notion of self-causation. Put to one side the question of whether the physics of their account is correct. Forget about where the laws of physics themselves are supposed to have come from. Just savor the manifest contradiction. The universe comes from nothing because a law like gravity is responsible for the universe. For some reason, this particular fallacy seems to be a favorite of physicists. Philosophers and theologians are constantly told that they need to learn the science before commenting on quantum mechanics, relativity, or Darwinism, and rightly so. Yet too many scientists refuse to learn the philosophy before pontificating on the subject. The results are particularly sophomoric. Hawking is an arrogant and clueless amateur. Close quotes. Now, cosmologists seem to continually spout this kind of nonsense. If we're ever going to get a handle on this problem, we've got to do something. I would like to propose a solution that's only slightly tongue-in-cheek. Anytime a cosmologist is going to make a public statement, he'll be required to put on a white beard, a fake one at least three feet long, a white cape and a matching tall cone hat, both covered with silver stars and comets, and punctuate important parts of his testimony by stabbing the air with a, with a wand. You know, Because there's a law like gravity, the universe can and will ex- create itself. It's not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and, and get, get the universe going. Ours is not the only universe. A great many universes were created out of nothing. Anytime someone saw one uh, in that kind of get-up, he'd realize, oh, look, there's a cosmologist. And there'd be fair warning to go get a cold one and pull up a chair and get ready for a good laugh. Okay, so the stated goal of the Big Bang theorists is to give a historical account of the universe, where it came from, how, why it began. Actually, how it'll end as well, but we don't have time for that. In other words, they are trying to solve historical problems with mathematical equations and, as we've seen, very, very crummy philosophy and theology. And there's the problem. If someone wants to study a historical event, like the Battle of Alamo, does he first start by mastering a bunch of complex mathematics and perform a bunch of experiments? If someone wants to study a historical event, say the story of Our Lady Guadalupe and the conversion of Mexico, does he pick up an advanced physics textbook? Of course not. But why not? Because although in some cases mathematics and science can contribute to historical studies, history is not a math problem. History isn't a science problem. History isn't a philosophy problem. We judge historical statements, we judge historical claims on the basis of historical evidence. When we want to determine the reliability or the truth of a historical claim, we look at the historical evidence. We ask ourselves, are there witnesses? Are there documents? Are there artifacts? Are there witnesses? Are there documents? Are there artifacts? Artifacts are things like photos, movies, 
bloody knives, footprints, etc. Are there monuments, tombs? Are there witnesses? Are there documents? Are there artifacts? Are they consistent? And are they reliable? That's how you do history. It's really important also to note there's absolutely no difference between the trust we place in scientists to accurately report their observations. No difference between that trust and the trust we place in eyewitnesses to historical events to accurately report their observations. The questions are the same, whether we're dealing with an absolute unique historical event or with repeatable experimental results in the lab. Are there witnesses? Are there documents? Are there artifacts? Are they consistent? Are they reliable? So the first methodological problem is obvious. If we're setting out to answer a historical question, we need to employ historical methods. And the cosmologists are not doing that. And once we see that clearly, one of the most important hidden assumptions becomes obvious. See, the history of the universe is being treated as if the only available evidence are the artifacts. And what are the artifacts? The universe itself. The history of the universe is being treated as if the only available evidence is the universe itself, which is only an artifact. And that assumption makes it possible to act as if the whole historical question could only be solved with science and math. But if we assume that all we have to work with is the universe itself, that leaves us only two possibilities. Either the origin of the universe was not witnessed, and therefore there aren't any documents, how could there be? Or the origin of the universe was witnessed, but the witness has certainly left us no reliable documentation. That's it. Either the origin of the universe was not witnessed, so of course there are no documents, or the origin of the universe was witnessed, we have no reliable documentation, all we have is the universe. In plain terms, the first possibility, no witness means no God, so of course there can't be any historical accounts of the origin of the universe. The second possibility is there is a witness, so there is a God, but he left us absolutely no reliable documentation. He left us no historical accounts of the origin of the universe. So the methodological problems of the Big Bang Theory are one. Historical question is not being treated as a historical question at all, but as if it's a very complex math problem. Two, as if the only available evidence of the origins of the universe are artifacts like stars and galaxies. Three, as if there are no witnesses and therefore no God at all. That would be the case with cosmologists like Stephen Hawking or Lawrence Krauss. Or four, for those who acknowledge there's a God, as if he has told us absolutely nothing of historical value about the origin of the universe, which would be the case for any Catholics who might subscribe to the Big Bang. So even those Big Bang believers to acknowledge the existence of God must logically conclude that Moses' account of the origin of the universe is not reliable historical documentation. Beloved doesn't lie. Are we supposed to believe that our loving Father in Heaven has allowed us to be misled for so long from the time of Moses until the 1920s? Are we really supposed to believe that we suffered under 34 centuries of complete error fundamentalist error about the creation of the universe until the fullness of time God sent the atheist to finally explain to us benighted Catholics what Genesis really means. Is this believable? Is this love? No, we weren't wrong. If you want to know what happened in the beginning, really happened, here it is. 
please note that the Bible is not a science book. I don't know where people get that weird idea. If I wanted to look up the periodic table of elements, I would not pick up my Bible. If I wanted to know the crystal structure of, of quartz, I would not pick up my Bible. It's not a science book. But among other things, it happens to be a history book. How about that? And right here, if I open it up, right here in the beginning, it has, right in the beginning of the Bible, we can find the testimony. It was given to Moses by God Almighty, the creator of the universe, who told him about the creation of the universe. And that testimony was made by the most reliable possible witness there could be, God Almighty. This is the most reliable possible documentation that exists because it is the inspired, inerrant word of God. In the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Bible, the inspired, inerrant word of God contains a solemn warning that a ring in our ears every time we hear someone try to defend fantastical fairy tales like the Big Bang. If you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. But if you don't believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Those are his words. The incarnate word. Christ our Lord, the second person, the most blessed Trinity, saying if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. But if you don't believe in his words, why would you believe my writing words? It's absolutely false to maintain with reference to the truths of our faith that what we believe regarding creation is of no consequence so long as one has an exact conception concerning God. Because an error regarding the nature of creation always gives rise to a false idea about God.